This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Welcome to Triple Vision. My name is David Best, and with me is Hannah Levitt. Hi, Hannah. Hi, David. How are you doing today? I'm great. In our last episode of 2021, we held a roundtable discussion with members of our Pandora Advisory Committee to answer the question, what is wrong with the narrative of blindness in Canada? And if you have not heard that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. As now, we want to dive into that theme a little bit more and talk about the print narrative, because the written word is an important tool in human communications. The day of releasing this podcast, January 4, we are celebrating the birth of Louis Braille, who was born in 1809. In 1824, as a young teenager, Louis invented the system of raised dots as a standard for reading, which became known as Braille. At about 1436, we know that Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. So the written Braille language did not appear until almost 400 years after the invention of the printing press. And it wasn't till the late 1900s did we get an automated process for producing books in Braille. Over the next three episodes, we want to explore this theme of the printed word a little bit more. And we'll start by looking at the history of library services for print-disabled people. So we'll be asking the question, when it comes to library services, do blind people in Canada get the same level of library service access as their sighted peers? To start us off on this journey, we have Jane Beaumont with us today, who is the CNIB archivist and past chair of the National Board of Directors. Jane is an experienced librarian and archivist working several years in the nonprofit management industry. Jane led a project where she and her colleagues documented the CNIB Library Services, and it was launched in 2018 to celebrate the 100th birthday of the CNIB. This is a special online exhibit, and you can see that material if you go to the World Wide Web at www dot that all may read dot ca so jane can you take us back to the early days even before the cnib library and tell us a little bit about a fellow named bert robinson who started the very first uh free library for the blind and who was blind himself Sure. I'm, um, I was, when we started talking about the centenary for CNIB in 2018, I was amazed to find that the library had existed long before <clears throat> CNIB. 
and that also the CNIB had a treasure trove of archives and artifacts dating back over 100 years. And so it all began with Bert Robinson, and he was the first blind graduate of a Canadian university. And while he was in university, his father transcribed his study materials for him. And after he graduated, there, he realized there was a demand for books. Um, there were very few books available. And in 1906, Bert called a meeting at his father's house in Markham, and the Canadian Free Library for the Blind was born. And it received, it actually received a grant from the Ontario government of $200 to help them get started. And from what we can tell, there were 75 titles, who were, which were mostly Bert's personal collection, and they were in New York Point, which was a raised type, not unlike Braille, but not, but one of the competitors to Braille. And there were 26 members of the library at the start. And Bert was quite an interesting and remarkable person, I believe. And he was also on the school board. And he went one day to meet a new teacher at the local school called Marion. And they quite quickly became engaged. So he was obviously very taken with her. And he persuaded her to quit her job and join him in running the library. And she was sighted, so she also used to read books to Bert so he could transcribe and print them. And in our CNIB archives, we've even got some photographs of Marion surrounded by huge Braille books, packing big bags for the um, post office to take for delivery to the, to the library users. So was there anyone else involved or was that a pretty solo effort on Bert's part? It was a solo effort at the start with Marion, but he had a board right from the beginning. So he had other blind, a few blind users of the library who, who constituted his board. And um, <clears throat> the saddest part of this story is that uh, Bert died in 1908. We think we think from typhoid after a trip to Toronto, and that could have been the end of the library. But Marion picked up the torch and persuaded the board to continue the library. She said she would manage the library if they would raise money to pay her salary and maintain the collection. Um, and in 1911, they actually moved the library to a the western branch of the Toronto Public Library. But um, money was always a problem. Um, and the board really weren't raising enough money to pay Mary in a living wage. And she had a child as well, so they, it, it mattered. And things came to a head in about 1913. Um, over the business of paying her a living wage. And she resigned. She had to go. She went to work at the Toronto Public Library because she just needed to have a proper, a decent job. And Sherman Swift, who's another, was a blind member of the library board, took over. And it's quite interesting that he, she was being paid about, I think, $500 a year. He was immediately paid around $1,000 a year. And 50 years later, she gave a speech in which she said for the rest of her life, she was an advocate of equal pay for equal work um, and probably an early feminist. But um, Sherman Swift stayed with the library. He stayed actually for more than 30 years until he died. And to me, he's a hero because he, he, he was a huge influence in the provision of Braille and the provision of library services to people with vision loss. So time went by and the library started to circulate more than books. It was providing Braille paper, Braille stylus, slates, playing cards. And for some, it was a lifeline. It was a huge um, lifeline to people who lived in remote areas. Um, and free postage for the blind was already well established. So that helped with the distribution of books. 
um, books were a rare commodity and um, really there was very few opportunities for people with, um, with vision loss. The Canadian Free Library for the Blind was that seed that grew into the CNIB, which was founded in 1918. By 1917, war-blinded veterans were coming back to CAT from Europe and were finding there were very few services. And adding, adding to that the Halifax explosion, which suddenly increased the urgency to find solutions and raise, and it was a huge thing in raising public awareness for the plight of the blind. And the board of the library, who were already providing ancillary services such as Braille training, moved very quickly to establish and incorporate the CNIB in March 1918. So the CNIB was founded thanks to the seven people, I think, who were probably all on the library board prior to this. Three of them were war-blinded, and two of them were blinded by other means. I I think Bert decided that Library books and textbooks were really extremely important for our education. Yes. And um, as you described, set up the first free library. So why do you think CNIB Library Services is an important operation for blind Canadians? Well, it, the library was amalgamated into the new CNIB in 1919, and ever since it's led the way internationally and in Canada in advocating for the right to read, equal access to information, and the development of library services for the blind. And when you say, you know, why was it so important? I guess I'm a librarian, and to me, libraries are important to every everybody. And for people who are blind or partially sighted, it was the only source in Canada, other than a few educational ones. So for for a hundred years, CNIB as a charity provided library services that were available to others through publicly funded libraries. Um, so it's it, it, the CNIB library was important in the same way that libraries, public libraries, were important to the rest of the population. The, the important part of this is that it was a charity that was providing library service and the rest of us are all, I'm cited, the rest of us were receiving our, li- our library services from a publicly funded organisations. So um, it's worth me going on and talking a little bit about some of the barriers and only a small fraction of published material is available in alternate formats, which is, and that includes Braille, audio, braille and audio primarily in the early days. Um, But one of the barriers to creating more alternate format material has been copyright. Um, Rights holders use copyright to protect their intellectual property from unauthorized reproduction. So the CNIB library um, had to obtain permission from publishers for every title they wanted to produce. And with their limited resources, Um, It wasn't very many titles compared with the mass of printed material available to the rest of us. So um, in 1997, following a decade of lobbying by advocates that included the former CNIB president, Jim Sanders, the Canadian government amended the Copyright Act to provide exceptions which permitted the production of an alternate format version for people with print disabilities, while at the same time protecting the rights of publishers. And I think it's it's important to remind everyone that 
print disability is not just inability to see the print, but maybe to hold a book if you were physically disabled or had um, dyslexia, which isn't considered another print disability. So this this Copyright Act is very, very important to broader than the vision loss community. So further revisions have broadened the types of materials so that now everything that a person with a print disability needs can be provided as an alternate format. So that that greatly increased CNIB's ability and saved a lot of time and money. The CNIB has provided library services for many, many years, but at some point they decided to get out of the library service and it was transferred to the public system. When did that happen and why did you, did they, uh, and why did the CNIB make that decision? Uh, so we're now getting to the late 1990s, which is actually where I began to get involved in the whole process and with CNIB Library <clears throat> as a volunteer. So um, if you can imagine at the end, by the 90, end of the 1990s, for many, many, many years, the, the people with vision loss had certain anger over the fact that they had to go to a charity to get public library services, while the sighted community goes to a publicly funded, widely available public library. So this this led eventually to a very concerted advocacy effort with with the public library communities and all levels of government. And at the same time, CNIB, this was just not a sustainable service for CNIB. By 19, by the turn of the century, it was costing CNIB more than $10 million to um, provide library services, create the titles, distribute them, etc. And that just wasn't sustainable and it wasn't right. And in, and in spite of that, less than 3% of published titles were probably available in alternate format. So something had to be done. And the, and an, at the same time, the cost and the convergence of emerging te- technologies helped to drive that decision and make it easier because the advantages, the advances in the tools for creation of new titles, audio, text-to-speech, Braille, and also the, adv- the advances in tools for storage and deliver- delivery of digital versions were actually making it easier for CNIB, but at the same time, they were not going to be able to keep up with the technology and the cost of that technology. So that was really the the driver for CNIB getting out of the library business, uh, coupled with, as I've said before, that a charity should not be providing a service that that the rest of the community gets from from public funds. So it took a while. It took from the late 1990s until around 2014, and a, a huge amount of advocacy and um, meeting with government officials and and talking with provincial uh, provincial and public library managements um, brought us to the point where CNIB produced a plan called Reading Reimagined, and at the same time was digitizing the existing collection. So today, um, thanks to the large public libraries and the provincial libraries, we have what's called CELA, 
the Centre for Equitable Library Access. And that's owned, funded and operated by a consortium of the large libraries and the provinces. So they they distribute alternate format books. They manage national licenses for online services such as Bookshare and for licenses for e-books and newspapers and magazines. So it's important to understand that CELA is independent, has its own board, and the end is owned by the library community. It's not owned by CNIB, but CNIB is the beneficiary in being a contractor to them. So the work that used to be done with CNIB's charitable dollars and is now paid for by CELA and, we're a con- and CNIB is a contractor to CELA. Does that make sense? Yes, that's a great explanation, actually. Yes. Okay. Um, I think more important um, or as important with CELA is that they provide training and support for member libraries so that frontline staff in the libraries can provide appropriate services and support library users. And for the first time, people with print disabilities and sight loss can go to their local public library and receive services alongside their family and friends. Now, many, many CELA users only deal directly with CELA. But even if they do that, they've been to the public library and they have a public, their local public library card, which is an important part of being part of the reading community. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, so internationally, after CELA um, in 2016, Um, Canada signed an international treaty known as the Marrakesh Treaty, and that facilitates cross-border sharing of of, um, alternate format books and is reducing reducing duplication and, again, broadening the the amount amount of titles that are available. Uh, We don't know the percentage of material that's accessible now, but it's it's important to recognize that accessible is different from what CELA contracts to, to create. It, with with the, tech, really the tools for reading e-braille, e-text, audio, people are, are obtaining their books from many more sources, many of them actually coming from, through the public libraries like Overdrive and Libby. And then there's Kindle text-to-speech and there's audible.com. When I think back to you know, being able to get my hand on a recently published book. I I always think back to the Harry Potter series because up till then there really wasn't any expectation that I could, you know, hear about a book that that they talked about on CBC, for instance, and and find it in a library in accessible format. But that Harry Potter series was really fascinating how how it became that first series that we received it at the same time that print readers did. Yeah. You're right. But do you know how that happened? That happened because the publisher, first of all, because there wasn't a Marrakesh Treaty, different, um, the, the British were recording it and the Canadians were recording it and etc. But even more than that, at the CNIB library, there was an amazing volunteer who took, got the Harry, we were able to get the Harry Potter um, text ahead of time. And she worked for days on end to get that book ready for the publication day. But the Harry Potter was probably one of the one of the first really huge efforts to get a book out at the same time. And as you're quite right, it very rarely happened. So I, I, in closing, I think the future is very bright. Um, there are um, digital creation, the more the more that is produced and created digitally, we call it born digital, the easier it is 
for users and Sheila and everybody else to create the different versions of alternate formats that, that people want. And then there are so many ways to receive that electronic copy now. So that, um, that part, that is very bright. That future is good. The other important part, I think, is agreements between the publishers and the distributors of these digital materials to um, allow Sila to you take the original digital um, version and put daisy around it or uh, ma massage it in ways that make it easier for people with vision loss with a whole lot less intervention um, as titles are born digital and conform to these standards. So I hope you'd agree that the future is bright. Thanks very much, Jane. That was great. I would like to welcome Albert Rule back to Triple Vision. Albert is a member of the Triple Vision Advisory Committee, and he participated in the roundtable discussion that we had in our last episode, talking about what's wrong with the Canadian narrative for blind people. Albert currently resides in British Columbia, and he did serve as the National Equity Director for the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. During the period of 1977 to 1990, Albert bravely traversed the journey of vision loss. Albert, welcome back to Triple Vision. So Albert, you've been a multiple decade user of audio uh, books and alternate format materials just as I have. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences over the years, like the early days of accessing materials and compare it a little bit to how you're doing that today and what the differences are? I think I've been <laughs> using audiobooks for about um, three decades. And I'll tell you, you know, what a, what a refreshing change it is to have it all digital now, because back, I, I never did use the reel-to-reel -reel as some some of our uh, blind and, and visually impaired compatriots have, have used. But I started in, and I also never used the LP. So I, I came in during the cassette era. And so, you know, did, did college with talking textbooks with these big gray boxes full of, of cassette tapes. And, you know, I remember going to the public library and going through, you know, sitting down with a large print catalog of all their audiobooks that were available and then ordering up a bunch of books and having to haul this big stack of big plastic cases home. And, you know, you get partway through a book and one tape would be ruined. And it just, you know, what a, what a nightmare they all were, the old cassettes, but thank God they were available because I, you know, I certainly learned early in my vision loss journey to really appreciate audiobooks. So, and I was I was actually working for CNIB when their library made the switch from cassette to Daisy digital audio, and then of course that was primarily CDs. And then now, of course, with you know digital downloads, I I think I've died and gone to heaven. I, you know, I can I can have a, the book I want in seconds. Oh, Albert, do you get all the books you want, and do you get all the books you need? Well, you know, I, I think anybody who who hears me talk about technology will think I become a bit of a broken record. I, I believe that no carpenter should ever think he can, he or she's going to make it with one hammer in their toolbox. So I get my, I get the books I need, 
because there are multiple sources that I can access. And, and so I do that. I buy from Audible. I buy, I go to Bookshare if I need to. I go to NNELS. I go to SELA. You know, I'll, I'll go to the public library. I will find, if I need a book, I will find it somewhere. So today, what kind of technologies do you use that help you to read the books that you want? Well, again, you know, I, I'm, I'm not stuck in one place. I, I use my phone primarily. Uh, my iPhone is my go-to technology for most things. And so it certainly is for audiobooks. But within that, I have several audiobook apps. So Dolphin Easy Reader so that I can access Sela. I'm a big, big proponent of Voice Dream Reader. But I also have the Google Play Books app. Um, and some of those kinds of things. I also have a Victor Reader Stream, uh, which I quite like, and so we'll use it. And then the the Google Speaker and the Amazon Speaker, I use them for podcasts, but I I haven't yet started to use them for audiobook, but I, I do certainly advocate every chance I get to seal a library that I, I hope that in time they will be able to alter their platform so that we can get audiobooks through a Google speaker. Do you see yourself getting books in the future in these same ways, or do you have some kind of a, a vision for the future in terms of accessing printed matter? Well, I can assure you that they will never implant anything under my skin <laughs> so that it'll just automatically download into my brain. I don't think I have, I don't have enough leftover gray matter that, that I can afford to lose. So I, for me, I, I'm, I'm 66 years old. I, you know, over the next 20 years, good heavens, I have no idea what it's going to look like 20 years from now. But I can certainly, I, I certainly will be one who will move with whatever shows up as long as it's accessible and available. Um, but there's always going to be a device in my hand and it's always going to be an earplug, an, an earbud in my ear, you know, for privacy. But no, I don't, I don't see a, I think there's just going to be a lot of nuance changes, uh, refinement to what we currently have but uh, the hands-free environment that that's certainly what i see going to happen a lot more in the future we're not going to have to pull the machine out of our pocket or touch it we're going to be able to speak to our device so do you see the future changing in such a way that our access to library services will be no different than our sighted peers i'm certainly seeing some of that now, even though I don't love everything about CELA Library and the fact that a charity owns all of all of that material, so I don't like that, but I love that it's been channeled out to the public libraries. I, I love that I can go down and sit in the room with a librarian and we can talk about what's available and what can I access and how can I access it. In fact, if, if I get a new, you know, if anybody out there gets a new DAISY player and they're not sure how to use it, they can go down to their to their local library. And so that accessible library services has been pushed out to public libraries for me is is an absolute you know, that's the way it ought to be. It should have always been this way. But for people who are starting on their vision loss journey, this face to face access, the hands over hand training on how to use the device they may, you know, their children or their family members may have purchased for them or, or they purchased themselves. That's really critically important. See, the other factor about 
about me in audiobook. I grew up as a sighted kid into my early 20s when I began my vision loss journey. And I was, I was never diagnosed, but I was probably borderline learning disability or borderline dyslexic. I'm not sure. My reading and comprehension skills were awful as a sighted kid. I had to have absolute quiet. I had to reread the, the paragraph two or three times to really catch it all. And so I think even from my early life, I was always an audible learner anyway. So when I went blind, it was almost like, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to read print anymore. And I, I really, really glomped on to audiobooks. So for me, this was such an easy transition because it made sense in the way my body works. But, you know, the whole audiobook thing, you guys, I did a piece for the CCB during White Cane Week earlier this year in, in February of 2021. I had done some research on the history of audiobooks. And it was fascinating for me to see that really this is just full circle. We've come back to the way humankind was before the Gutenberg press. Right. Right. We, so we're, we were, we're, back to, we're back to storytelling, right? That's right. We're back to yeah. storytelling, oral traditions. That's part of our DNA. That, that hasn't evolved out of us yet. So, you know, to know that, okay, we've just come back to where we were, the Gutenberg press and all that, all those printed books were, were an interesting period of time, but you know, we're not, we're not stuck with that unless, you know, you want to use Braille to access a lot of material. You can still go back to that sort of printed word under your finger instead of through your eyes. Library services are important for all sectors and all levels of education, and audiobooks are a great source of information. However, what do you think about library services that are offering books in skill trades, um, mathematics, or even some kind of uh, material that cannot be expressed through audio? Yeah, that certainly poses a difference there, doesn't it? And the school system, both K to 12 and post-secondary, you know, that's always a challenge is get the publishers getting that book in an accessible and usable format uh, for mathematics. You know, we, we have far too many people shortchange themselves and don't go into professions they might do really well at because of lack of access. And that certainly to me is an area where we definitely need more improvement, more access. And, you know, I, I just wish that the, the laws of the land would, would f force the publishers to absolutely make their material accessible and available. I, I you know, I just think it's a, uh, access to information is a basic right. And I would love for us to do more advocacy in that area. I invite you to join us on our next episode, part two, where we will take a closer look at the public mandate for accessible library services. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, I would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at 
Triple Vision 2-1.